Penn State Conversations is a podcast produced by the Donald P. Bellisario College of Communications. Episode topics range from the people, programs, and events that shape the Bellisario College to discussing key aspects of life in the professional world for young and upcoming communications alumni. Please enjoy this episode of Penn State Conversations. Welcome back to the Penn State Conversations podcast. Jacob Wilkins, pleasure to be joined by not just a distinguished alum, an alumni fellow, and his newest title, the partner of Mercury, Ben Feller, also was the chief White House correspondent for the AP. Ben, great to be with you, my friend. Jacob, great to be with you, and anything associated with Penn State makes me proud, so I appreciate the chance. Of course, and let's start, not chronologically, but topically, uh, with Super Tuesday tomorrow. Um, how would you go about, and I assume you would have covered the Obama re-election campaign, if I have the timeline right. I don't know if, Bush, you were focused on the end of his term, but what would be going through your mind on a day like this? Oh, you know, it's finally interesting, I think, to... <laughs> not just the political class, but to everyday Americans who are trying to make sense of this race. Because, you know, heading into tomorrow night's uh, big votes, you've got finally a sense of things tightening and coalescing and a real choice emerging. And so I have the luxury now of watching it you know, truly as an observer, as a very interested observer and as a you know, participant in the, in the debate, um, but not one who's covering it. So I can be a little bit removed from it. And, uh, and it's very interesting to me to see how this is going to go uh, coming out of Super Tuesday. I think for a long time there's been a sense that this has been, um, you know, while certainly consequential, a bit of a slog over the last, you know, six to 12 months. And now there's a bit of an uptick in, I think, attention and consequence for, for people and in terms of uh, really getting a sense of how this might play out. So it's going to be fun. And what was it like when you were in the flesh, so to say, covering a, a campaign? Oh, you know, it was all-consuming. Uh, so, you know, I covered, as you noted, the last two years of, of President George W. Bush. So in that election cycle, I was really focused on the president and the presidency in the last uh, part of his term, uh, his, his second term, uh, when uh, stayed on and covered President Obama, who, of course, beat uh, uh, Senator McCain. Uh, at that point, you know, I was covering the president, but it was really politics all the time, including his run for re-election uh, when he beat uh, Mitt Romney. And so at that point, every hour, every day was consumed by the very things that, you know, we're all hearing and reading about. Um, there were, of course, moments where you were off the clock, but it never really felt like it. And I imagine, take me back to when you got the, the nod to be chief White House correspondent. Uh, what was that moment like? How did that come about? You know, it's interesting, Jacob, because I've been thinking about that moment uh, a lot lately. Uh, I, at that point, I had been at the White House beat for a few years. And, and when I started, as I said, covering President Bush, I was really, you know, the, the lowest ranking person on the team, which was completely fine as I, as I figured out what it was like to really understand covering a president and understand the stakes of doing so for the Associated Press. Uh, as the years went on and I moved from the Bush beat to the Obama beat, uh, I moved up in seniority. 
And um, I had really mentored under um, a legendary correspondent, Terry Hunt. Uh, he moved over to our main office to oversee the coverage of the economic meltdown of 2008. And Jennifer Lovin became the chief correspondent. And I served under her and learned a lot from her for a couple of years. And then when she decided to leave journalism, all of a sudden they you know, called me into the office one day and said, uh, we'd like you to be the, the chief White House correspondent, which you know is the same day-to-day job in terms of breaking news and, and um understanding what's going to happen and and being the fastest and most accurate on it. But there was also an ability and a responsibility to um, be the main person, the first question in the briefing room and the first question in news conferences and really run the team. And so it felt like a big leap, and it was. But to my peers on the team, they said, Ben, we we sort of saw you that way anyway, which was a great compliment. And and that's um, sort of the reaction I've had here at, at the strategy firm where I work at Mercury, uh, just became partner, which is a, you know, a great feeling. But a lot of folks here said, you know, we really saw you that way anyway. And I think that's, that's a point of pride when, you know, you move up in the world, but your peers and, and your friends sort of see you in that light anyway. It means you've sort of been focusing on the right things. That's, that's how I like to see it. Yeah, I can't have a bigger compliment than that. Take me back to those series of firsts in the job. First interview, sit-down interview with the president, first visit on uh, Air Force One, because I'm sure there's a fine balance between obviously reaching the pinnacle of uh, a career and at the same time, you don't want to godify the role and seem overwhelmed uh, by the moment. Yeah, you know, it's a great point, Jacob, and it's a very tricky balance. Uh, when I started in Washington, D.C., at the Associated Press, I was covering national education, which in itself had been a big job and a big leap for me coming from, from daily newspapering. I had never done a national beat before, and a couple of years into that, was the 50th anniversary of the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And so I was a big part of that coverage and sort of writing about the meaning of race in education and how much things had changed and not changed. And so they had me go with President Bush to mark the 50th anniversary in, in Topeka, which meant that I was with him on Air Force One. And it was a great feeling, tremendous pressure. There was some nervousness mm. on that front. Uh, but but I did it well. I made it to the plane on time. I wrote well. I didn't <laughs> hand off to the other reporter. I, nothing. Everything worked. You know, I, I didn't I didn't miss anything. And and they saw from that uh, that I could that I could handle it. It was you know they they don't they don't give out those assignments uh, you know lightly. And so then the time came and over the next year or two. Occasionally, our White House team would need somebody to fill in, and and so I did that a couple of times. And really. The, the big moment came when President Bush took what seemed to be a, uh, an innocuous trip out to Colorado to talk about energy, and nothing the president ever does is innocuous, but there are some days on the calendar that look <laughs> as run-of-the-mill as they come. And th- on this particular occasion, there was a huge controversy happening back in Washington while he was gone about whether an Arab company should have uh, the ability to provide security or run security at U.S. seaports, and this was still in the um, post you know, 9/11 atmosphere, and and President Bush saw it as a direct sort of attack on you know freedom and the principles of America, and he had some disputes with his own party on this, and so he felt so strongly about it that he had a news conference on Air Force One on the way back to Washington, which was a rarity, and I happened to be on the plane filling in, covering this energy event, and so you know I go into his um, conference room on the plane and just 
tried to keep my wits about me. And when we, we sat down, he went around the room quickly and said hi to the rest of the press pool. It was only you know six or eight of us. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know you. <laughs> and I <laughs> yep. said, I'm Ben Feller with the AP. He goes, oh, AP guy. Okay, AP likes to sit up here next to me. So, you know, I went up and sat next to him and he gave a, a pretty impassioned speech defending uh, his view. And then uh, he says, what do you got? And I asked him, what are you going to do if, if um, you know, your position is vetoed by members of your own party? And he said, well, you know, you've heard me and they better hear me too, you know, or, or I'll take care of it, something along those lines. And, and um, you know, so it was a big moment and I, you know, got him to make news and, um, you know, handled it. We filed out a series of news alerts as soon as we could. And, you know, at that moment, my bosses saw me as somebody who could handle things when, when they went sideways. Um, the funny part was the reporter uh, for whom I filled in came up and, and gave me so much grief. I won't say on this um, podcast what she said because it was colorful, but basically <laughs> she had not been able to get into that room on the plane for years, and I fill in one day and I'm interviewing the president. So, um, you know, you got to be ready for those moments. But, you know, that was sort of what I, the lesson I took from it is always be ready. You know, don't try to make it more than it is. Do the energy speech, come home, be prepared. And then when something like that happens, you know, you're able to impress the right people. Yeah, it's the old adage of luck and preparation sort of coming together. Uh, I think so, yes. Providing good timing. Tell me, um, you know, we shifting back to, to the modern campaign or the this campaign cycle, uh, how has coverage evolved uh, even from, gosh, you know, seven years ago when, when you left the beat uh, to how these campaigns are covered and how intensely they're covered and the ways and distribution platforms uh, that there are that you see? You know, Jacob, it's really hard sometimes as a as a consumer or, or even being in the communications business um, to get your arms around all of the choices and all the ways in which you know politics are covered. Uh, there's just there's so much out there. So I think you know, in the, it's changed in two ways. Um, one is in some cases the platforms that were really new when I covered politics, especially when I covered the White House. Um, have matured. Both the social media platforms like Twitter and, and some of the news outlets have become the establishment. And so, you know, there was some skepticism back then, I think, uh, from the old guard places like the AP. And, and you know, if you looked at the journalists who covered politics, you know, when I was growing up and getting into the field, there was, they tended to, they always seemed to have, you know, if not a Walter Cronkite look to them, they seemed to skew, <laughs> you know, older. And, and now there's just, there's so much more youth and diversity, both in terms of the reporters who cover politics um, and the, the panels of reporters you see all the time on TV, but also in the outlets, of course, you know, um, there's, there's so many uh, from which to choose. And so, that is just a big change, you know, to me. Some of the ways it, it, you know, it felt it was enormous pressure when I did it, and that's still true. But it, it, you know, looking back on it now, it almost felt like the world was a bit smaller. And I'm sure that, you know, to the folks who covered it before me, even five, ten years before, I know it was smaller to them, right? The, the more outlets you have, the more pressure you have to be first and to break news. Um, you know, that's just a consequence of the changing journalism platform. The other big difference, of course, is, and this gets into a broader issue, but even though there was tremendous tension between the White House and reporters, campaigns and reporters at times, there was a, some level, a built-in respect, right, both in both directions at, at a broad level. And, you know, with the current state of affairs between the, the Trump White House and the, and the press corps, um, you know, everything has been shattered. I mean, you know, again, that's a whole discussion about 
the press being accused of being enemy of the state, some of the things we've seen over the last few years. But it's hard for me when people have asked me if I miss it to picture myself in that situation because it's just so antithetical to what I did for 20 years where there was, again, a a real tension and conflict sometimes, but there was an understanding. We have a job to do and cover you fairly, not favorably. And the, the politicians have a job to do in trying to get what they want done, but also they have to be accountable. And, you know, now that that norm has really changed, I hope it'll come back, but that part has been sort of hard to reconcile. Do you think it has a chance to, to shift back? Well, look, a lot of it is going to have to do with who holds the office and what, you know, uh, he or she deems to be the right relationship between um, the White House or, you know, Congress and and the press corps. Um, and so, you know, I'm hopeful that it will. But, but I do think that some of the the traditions of covering the White House um, that that I was part of are probably just going to go away. I mean, what, you know, once things start to change, for example, the the press briefings, you know, they used to be straightforward and they became televised. And there's a lot of debate whether or not they were televised. I um, I understood their role, the the White House press briefings on a daily basis, in terms of holding um, you know people in power accountable. I didn't really get a ton of value out of them from a journalistic standpoint. But most of my best reporting was was behind the scenes, not in front of the cameras like that. Mm-hmm. But I do think they were important, and now they've gone away, right? And now that's normalized. So will they come back? Is it the right thing to come back? I don't know. But once you set a precedent and a standard, and it becomes the new norm, it does make it harder to go back. I think in terms of a a certain you know respect and civility. Um, I hope so. I certainly hope so. You don't want to concede things like that. I wonder in 2013 or even now, uh, it seems like if you're on, if, if you thought of this sort of career path, and we'll get you, we'll get into you know what made you sort of switch gears. But it seems on the various cable platforms, and for years there's been print reporters going over to broadcast. But just like a guy like Jeff Zeleny or Abby Phillip, where they're you know, Washington Post reporters or New York Times reporters, but also on CNN. I mean, these panels are so big. Is that something that has increased over time, or is there just more saturation? No, I, it's absolutely, and it's not just increased the number of them. The sort of the whole dynamic uh, was happening while I was in reporting, uh, but now the 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 degree to which it is just you know so mainstream is a big change, and so. When I was at the AP, they allowed us to do um, to to participate in in panel discussions on the shows, but it was absolutely seen as an extra and not something that should ever you know conflict with your daily work. Um, I think now it is seen as part of the platform of whatever news outlet you you work for that you can also go on TV. And, and do these some of these reporters have dual roles, it seems, as analysts for a network, but also their day job. And, you know, I think when I covered news, there was a I came from a print background. So there was an inclination to think that newspaper reporting, wire reporting was just a completely different animal than than TV. They were really sort of two different paths. And now I think um that the the television platform has seen in a lot of cases what they really want is the best reporting. And if that means that they're reading stories of certain reporters every day, they think, well, why, why would we cover what they're covering? Why don't we just hire them? 
Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think those reporters think, well, as long as I have a chance to tell good stories, um, I don't need to do it in a print platform. I can go on TV. And so you've seen the move from print to TV much, much more often than, uh, than when I did it. And, in fact, some of those folks you mentioned, I had to think for a second about I, – now I only think of them as TV people, right? right. I had forgotten their, their newspaper backgrounds. And so it's not like it didn't happen before, but it's much more prevalent. The panels of reporters are much more prevalent. I had a problem with that. Uh, to some degree, because I was old school and I was I was sort of raised that way professionally. Now, frankly, when I watch those panels, which isn't a ton, but I, I know a lot of those folks. I think they bring their, those shows are very well curated, and I learn a lot. So I'm I'm sort of uh, grown much more accustomed to it and enjoy them more than I used to. And for lack of a, uh, a better term, the double dipping, where you're truly being paid by both outlets rather than just appearing, let's say, on Meet the Press on a Sunday or Face the Nation, probably the print outlet is happy with it because it's more exposure for them in what some see as a tougher industry, you know, to, to get um, clicks and, and, and readers. You know, that's one of these cases on that kind of specific question where my answer is I don't know because that changed after I left. In other words, if I were in that situation now, it's hard for me to picture it, but I, I think my news outlet, in that case the Associated Press, would say, um, yes, we're happy for the exposure. It inures to our benefit, too. But if you're going to be breaking news or sharing insights from your notebook, we want it on our platform first. Right? Point. Don't, don't, yep. don't say it on TV <laughs> if, you, if you work for us. And so I don't know how that works. I, I've always been interested about that, that if there's a reporter who is in both uh, platforms, what the agreement is there. It's also possible that, you know, um, they're just not worried about it as much. As long as they're doing good work, um, there's an interchangeability to it. But I can tell you when I was there, um, you know, anything that you did was considered extra and shouldn't be seen as competitive. Otherwise, you know, you had to be held to account internally. You know, who do you work for here? So that I've wondered about that myself sometimes. But look, it's working for a lot of them. They get to... um, they get to be sort of uh, cross-platform, and I think audiences get to see them in a couple places, and if the best work is getting out, you know, more power to them. Here's a question I've always been fascinated by, Ben, is, and I guess it's more of a personal question, in that, you know, politics, especially now, is supercharged at the, at the dinner table uh, amongst folks getting together, and obviously your job with the AP is to stay impartial and, and be down the middle. Did you have to uh, fend off those wondering, you know, your political opinions when you were in non-professional settings? Uh, a, a little bit, a little bit. But I think as the years went by, people just stopped asking because they grew frustrated with my answers. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there was a sense of, I know you're not allowed to talk about it, but, or I know that you're, you're not supposed to have opinions, but, you know, you can tell us, we're your family, we're your close friends, you can trust us. And And I always told them that the premise was wrong. It's it's not just that that's a professional responsibility to be down the middle because I take that very seriously. I think so many folks, you know, walking around who are engaged in, in society are very political. In, in other words, they, they have strong opinions about issues and they have strong opinions about, about the people that they see, you know, running the country or running their city. And in my case, I became a journalist in such a fundamentally profound way to me at a young age that the issue that I cared about was journalism, was holding people accountable. If I was covering a campaign and the politician X said I'm going to do Y, 
then became my passion to make sure that I remembered everything he or she said and I was going to hold them accountable and that that was my way of staying involved and in, in being involved. And I didn't necessarily have a stand privately on what that issue was. Now, obviously, you know, there's, there's right and wrong. And I think, you know, everybody has those mores to some degree. But a lot of times people would say, for example, when I covered national education, if issues about charter school or school vouchers came up, they would, you know, sort of have this position that Ben must have a stand on this. He's just not allowed to say it. I, I never really understood that. I'm like, why do you assume that I have to have a position on, on school vouchers? Because you want me to? Because you do? I mean, you know, so it's not just the journalistic mindset. I think it, it for me, it really sunk in of being objective in it. And so it was sort of a boring answer, Jacob, at a lot of these events. You know, they're like, okay, well, can you at least tell us what the president is like privately? And I could, I would absolutely say as much as I could. And, and, but when they said, which one do you like more? I'm just like, boy, you guys are really focused <laughs> on opinions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just not that opinionated. I'm really, really not, you know? And I think it was a transition for me when I left journalism to start to think about, like, you know, my mind, am I more open now to, to having opinions on things I never did before? And, you know, uh, and I do. I certainly do. But I never really felt comfortable doing it when I was in reporting. And that's a nice segue into. So we're in 2013 and uh, you're in the middle of the Obama administration. And I understand because I think there's a lot of parallels in obviously the sports journalism and uh, news political journalism industries. It's always more glamorous from the outside looking in. But people think, hey, this guy's leaving. What's going on? Uh, what was the thought process um, beyond obviously trying to uh, have a little more time to yourself, I imagine, uh, in making this transitional move. Yeah, you know, I think um, what what wasn't as obvious from the outside then because of the position I held was the accumulation of everything that came before it. So, you know, it wasn't just um, the first term of Obama or six years with Obama and Bush. It was 20 years of, of being on deadline and 20 years of always having your schedule determined by the flow of news. And when I say always, I mean, yes, of course, there were some vacations in there and sometimes when you were off. But if you're really passionate about it and that expectation grows, you're always in the back of your mind, you're on, you're, you know, for the next email, the next phone call. And so I wanted to continue to write. I wanted to continue to be competitive. I liked the idea of applying my skills to something different, didn't know what it was. But, you know, I think the term burnout is overused, but there was definitely a diminishing enjoyment in the chase of the story. And I think that's just a very hard thing for a journalist to understand, to accept, and to say out loud. And it's really hard for your brethren to do that. We're like, well, that's just the deal. Like, that's mm -hmm. what you signed up for. I'm like, yeah, it is what I signed up for. It doesn't mean that it's a lifetime engagement. Right? You're allowed to choose. And that was like the thunderbolt. Well, yeah, you're allowed to choose, but why wouldn't you choose this? And it's just a personal, it's a personal choice, you know? And I think some people got it and they're like, wow, this is great. You should, it's the pursuit of happiness. Why shouldn't you pursue something different? Um, of course, you know, in most lives, you hear this all the time, Jacob, that people change careers multiple times by choice or not by choice. I think changing careers once wasn't that, shouldn't have been that big of a bombshell, right? And, and also, you know, some people thought, you know, that's just crazy that you would ever leave. And I said, well, when, when would I, when would be a good time, right? I mean, Obama had just won re-election. And at that point, it was assumed that Hillary Clinton would run to, to try to, you know, win the next nomination. And so would you leave then because you have this historic race? Well, no, then if she wins, you got to cover it. And if she doesn't, you know what I mean? There's never a good time. So it became just a matter of a personal choice. And so, 
Um, once that happened, um, I had to allow myself the ability to really look at what I wanted to do and that, and also give myself a few months to decide. And that process was, a, was actually not as unnerving as I thought. It was a little bit more fun than I thought because I, I had never done that before. And that's what led me to the, uh, to the firm I'm at right now. And what did you learn in those few months that that said Mercury was was the right place to go, and not just Mercury as the company, but this sort of work? Well, there were there were two issues I had to decide there. One was where was I going to end up working, and what would I end up doing? And the other one was how was I going to deal with this change in my identity if I wasn't going to be a journalist anymore? And they're not mm. exactly the same thing, right? The the career choice in consulting and the, the specific choice of the firm I picked, Mercury, was framed pretty early on in that period. This was early 2013 when, you know, the, the folks here in leadership uh, who I met through a mutual contact said, you know, we're, we're not a PR firm, a public relations firm, you know, or a strategy firm. The difference is we're trying to solve something, right? We're trying to help people solve something. And there's a demand for what you know. There's a demand for what's in your head, and that is you've covered issues in politics uh, and, and challenges, and you've forced issues to the fore and then figured out how to explain them for years and years and years. You understand the media. You understand messaging. You've been in a prominent position. You've, you've talked one-on-one with presidents. There's a value. There's an inherent business value to that, and that just is really interesting to me, right? People don't, usually don't talk to journalists like that. You know, it's a business proposition, and so they said if you could find a way to um, to apply that and feel comfortable with it and and help us drive a business here, then we think you'll do very very well. You know, and by the way, if you don't, then you're not going to last here because this isn't a landing spot. And it was just a very straight, blunt business decision, and and I've I I embrace that a lot and it was challenging to me there was nothing about it that was safe jacob but mm-hmm. i liked that about it um and you know it's been seven years and as you said it's 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 gone well it's been a real grind just like journalism was a grind absolutely but it's worked well the identity part was tougher because that was um you know 20 years in the making and um you know it, it 2013 was a whole transition year i mean um president obama at the start of his second term i i knew when he held a news conference, I knew what the first question was going to be. I knew what the second question was going to be. I knew how long it was going to last. I just like I would see him on TV, and I would I knew that stuff by heart. And he would go on trips, and I would think about you know oh I would be on the plane right now. And I had I didn't really want to be there, but it still was sort of like okay I don't do that anymore. And and I did some things in the public sphere that first year, and I, I you know I enjoyed them, but I thought wow you know what why am I doing this? Do I really want to be spending my off time, you know doing journalist type events? Or do I want to dive into my new career and have more time, you know, uh, with with my son and other things I want to do? And so once that kind of clicked, it took, you know, I'd say about nine months to 12 months. Then I was all in and, you know, became much, much easier to answer the question, do you miss it? Because I would think about all the stuff I didn't miss, right? Falling asleep with the phone on my chest at two in the morning trying to chase a story, Mm. right? Having a great story but have the editors only focused on the stuff that ran inside the New York Times that you didn't have. I mean, it, it got pretty... (laughs) <laughs> it got pretty hard to meet that expectation every day. And, and almost like no matter what you did, and I thought, I don't want to live like that for the next 20 years. You know, I'd like to try to grab a little bit more control. And that's the beauty of, I think, putting your head down for years and years and doing good work is at some point in your career, knock on wood, you get to grab some of the control back. And when I look back at that period you're asking me about, 2013, that's really what I was trying to do. I was kind of at the midpoint, and I wanted to try to grab some of the control back. 
it's it's a it's it's a really interesting interplay because we were you, you mentioned how people probably had a harder time absorbing this career switch for you because this isn't you know going from accounting firm to real estate marketing i mean you were in a place that most people will never get to and i don't mean just the title literally physical places that most people right. don't get to in a lifetime and so it is, but i totally understand uh what you're saying you know from the intensity end um and and imagine that that was certainly an adjustment because it would be normal not that you're an egomaniac ben but that uh you know there's there's some cachet that goes along with this job there, there is and look i joke that you know when i miss it the most and boy do i miss it if if, if only at this time was is when i land i live in new york city now and you know i land at LaGuardia. And or any of the airports here, and have to get back to Brooklyn, and it's just a nightmare, you know. <laughs> when I when I cover the president, you never, you know, you just got on Air Force One, and they they were very nice to you. <laughs> so right, you know, right. There, there were there were some perks like that, but of course, you don't make a life decision around that. I think the thing that addresses the point you're you're asking about is, look, there's a big difference between say I, I say I did it for six months versus I did it for six years, and within those six years, I mean, I took hundreds of trips on Air Force One. I, I was in the presence of the, the, the Oval Office more times than I can count. And so after a while, the sense of, oh, I can't give this up because I'm going to miss out. Well, if you have an accumulated experience of doing it over and over again, at some point, if the enjoyment and, and you know your priorities change and all of these things weigh out, you, it's okay to move on. You give yourself permission to move on because you think, okay, sure, I'm going to miss the, the next trip to the Middle East. You know, but I've done those, right? And yes, I'm going to miss the next presidential interview, but I've done those. So what do I want to do? And I'm not saying it was easy, but it became easier knowing that at that point I had been covering politics for 20 years. It, it allows you to have a little bit more permission, right? And and I think, again, there were, there were trade-offs, but I, I would not trade my white house experience for anything it was a marvelous life experience um i just was i just was ready do you get to a point and, and again the outside person it's always they're looking at the president as this you know enhanced role and almost more as the title than the person but does it get to a point where just like if you're covering a manager or a coach they're just people at the end of the day uh not quite to that okay. degree right i mean i know <laughs> i know what you're saying and there are elements of that i think um that's probably a case where if I had done it longer or really knew somebody when he or she was, you know, a, a state lawmaker and then, you know, moved up and moved up and became president and did two terms where you really knew them for 20, 25 years, yes. I wouldn't say I ever got to that level. But you're right that there is a um, an aura from the outside that these are, you know, it, it's just, it's otherworldly. You know, no matter what party they are, and you know, when you're inside the circle, that those were actually the best moments, Jacob, of of the beat, because it wasn't just about the access; it was really getting to know the person. That's when you felt like you were in a truly treasured place, you know. And I was in that position, you know, quite a bit um, to just, you know, have eye contact and and chat, you know, for for extended periods. And really got a sense of when somebody was on their game, when they were tired, when they wanted to engage, you know, when they were curious about what the press was going to do next. I mean, it became, you know, I remember one time when the president came to the back of Air Force One and whatever we were asking about that day, the news of the day, when he went back to, you know, the rest of the plane, one of the other reporters turned to me and said, you know, you've got a pretty good rapport with him. Like, it's not just that question and answer went well. Like, there's just, you know, you guys are, you know, there's a comfort level. 
both directions. I'm like, well, that's really nice. I mean, it's it's not friendly per se. It's not unfriendly, but it's sort of at the point like, you know, when you when the president comes back and you're chatting the way you and I are right now, that's a good sign. You know, that means you're really comfortable, and that was hard earned. Yeah, and even when you talked about that first trip when you were in the, you know, when Bush, uh, when President Bush asked, you know, who are you? It just that just seems like a. A nice, you know, fun, normal initiation, you know, to the whole thing uh, that you yeah. would see in a boardroom or, you know, in a dugout or in a, in a clubhouse. Yeah, and look, the, the, the job, as, um, as weighty as it is, it puts you in weird positions. And by that, I mean just sort of, you know, ordinary experiences help make the situation more real. You know, I remember, you know, when, when Obama won and he and Biden got in the motorcade for the surprise trip, and it was early days, and we had no idea where they were going. And all they were doing was going into Virginia to get cheeseburgers. <laughs> and so then we were like, we're packed in. The press is trying to, you know, read their body language and figure out what they're ordering. And and you know, they like, I don't, I think the president went to pay, and he forgot he didn't have money on him, and somebody had to hand him money. You know, <laughs> like it was just like two guys ordering burgers. It was as routine as it gets, but it had this sort of like, well, no, it's not routine because they're ordering cheeseburgers, and we have to take it very seriously. And you know, who got pickles on there? And and you know, eventually you realize like that's just, this is kind of silly. Like not everything is breathless. We should probably calm down a little bit. Right. And right. you do that enough, and you're like, okay, yeah, they, they just they you know, president wanted a burger, so he just went and got one. You know. Uh, and uh, and there are enough other moments like that where you know you're in proximity. Um, you know, at one time at a hotel, um, I surprised him, and I was coming around the corner. I was going to the gym, and he was coming out. And I said, "Good morning, Mr. President." And he goes, "Hey, guys." And I'm like, well, "No, no, guys, just me. You know, I'm not I'm not a group. I'm not a monolith. It's just Ben. I don't expect you to remember my name yet, but you know, we can just talk as people. You know, and so they have to get into that mode too." Well, and that's where it's not always normal. There's, you know, an advanced team that's going into the cheeseburger joint, uh, and yeah. there's, there's, you know, Secret Service, obviously, uh, at all times. The trappings are there, yes. Yes. Tell me, um, in was your passion for, was there always a passion for education, or were there, was that where the opportunities were uh, from a beat standpoint? You know, it was, it was more the latter, to be honest, although um, it developed a real interest. I, I grew up, you know, in a higher education household, uh, my dad ran a, uh, was an economist, and he ran an institute, um, institute for policy research at Penn State. My mom uh, was involved in academic counseling, and you know we grew up. I grew up there in State College, and um, and so when uh, education became open as a beat on my, I think it was my second newspaper job, um, really became a focus, and then that grew into the next beat in uh, in Florida. Uh, and so it led to, you know, kind of a specialty for me and, and gave me access to university presidents and university politics, which are really interesting. And and then professionally, it created different kinds of openings for me because uh, that's how I got to Washington. Uh, I think at some point the scale tipped and I thought, okay, um, I've done this for a long time and I'd like to do something different. And, and that was my fourth year on the National Education Beef with AP. And I went in and talked to our bureau chief who at the time was Sandy Johnson, and she's an extremely busy person, and she's like, well, basically, what, what do you want? You know, and I said, well, I've been here for four years, and she looked up from her, what she was doing, was just stunned. She thought it had been like two years. I'm like, no, it's been four years. <laughs> yep. And she said, okay, what do you want to do? And I was very cut to the chase, and I told her about this job. She's like, well, we don't really do that here, you know, and, and she's like, okay, well, you know, I've got some ideas, and she approached Terry Hunt, and again, as I mentioned, I had done those fill-in jobs, and, and so a couple months went by, but they called me and said, we want you to come over to the White House team and and so you know again that was that was so um, uh, so life changing and so fun 
But in my current job, you know, where I'm helping organizations and people tell their stories, it's interesting, Jacob, because a, a lot of what is more relevant to my work now and to the clients I help is not my White House time, but my education time, right? I have a lot of uh, clients who are universities or who work in the education space, and they like the fact that I did storytelling and education and that I have some of the policy backgrounds going back to accountability and No Child Left Behind and uh, charter schools and a lot of those things. And so, again, it's the accumulation of your experiences. You never know how they're going to come in handy. So, you know, I, I take a lot of joy in that. And to the young students and their current students, young alumni that are listening, you know, tell me, your White House uh, work and the work with the AP, you know, it's clear what you did. Uh, it, it's easier to explain. Uh, what are the biggest challenges you face at Mercury? What are the things that occupy your time on a daily basis? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, I appreciate that that point because, you know, as, as I said a minute, a minute ago, uh, I frame my job as helping people and organizations tell their stories. And I think that's a concept that a lot of people can get, right? A lot of, uh, almost everybody at some point in their upbringing and in their uh, you know, collegiate career has spent some time in writing. And so I think there's a sense that everybody does it and everybody can do it. And in fact, the ability to make the complicated simple, the ability to take differing points of view and, and um, sophisticated concepts and boil it down to something that is relevant to everybody else, that's a skill. That's a hard skill. And so that's something that I've sort of created here at Mercury is that practice of helping people define who they are, what they do, how they're different, and why it matters. And and it's been interesting to me how many folks struggle with that. And so I've um, spent a lot of my time on that, those kind of messaging projects. Uh, I also oversee media campaigns where one of the clients that we're trying to help is trying to get coverage around their issues or, or get better understanding of the work that they're doing. For example, cancer centers that we work with are trying to break through with their the researchers, and so we spend time with them and figure out um, who would be interested in telling those stories. Typically, I oversee those when I'm involved in those kind of campaigns, and we have other folks who are working directly with the media. Sometimes I do writing training and teaching to clients where we do media training. I do a lot of, um, uh, not a lot, but a decent amount of crisis work where we're helping folks uh, who are in tough spots. Um, you know, if it's uh, somebody in healthcare and there's a crisis that they're helping out with, you know, how do they get a handle on it and how do they tell that story? So there's a whole range of ways in which, you know, the, the journalism skills apply. Some of what I do is driven by demand, right? What a client's need, and some of it is driven by educating folks about, about what we do. But either way, I think to the young person coming out, if you have a journalism degree or a marketing degree or, or advertising, or you want to go into the kind of work I do in, in public affairs and consulting, um, I think the true storytelling skills of understanding how to write well, understanding how to listen well, understanding how to see the big picture, understanding how to be humble, and, and you don't have to get to the best job in three years, right? You've got to kind of keep your eye on what's right in front of you. Those are the key traits. I don't think those have changed. I really don't. The The, the communications landscape has changed dramatically. And I think expectations have changed, and a lot of things have skewed younger and all the things we talked about. But those core skills, I really believe that's my main advice, is focus on those things. And I'd have to wrap up with you being a big sports fan. I assume you and your son, uh, Sam, are you going to be at opening day for the Yankees again? We are. We Good. are. I, think, I appreciate that. Um, he has been at every – he's eight now. Uh, he'll be nine this June, and, and he, uh, we've been at every opening day since uh, since he was one, one and a half, when we moved to New York. So 
Um, you know, uh, he looks a lot different. I look a little different in the pictures, you know, a little bit grayer, but <laughs> yes. it's a tremendous tradition. Um, in fact, uh, buying those two tickets is now on my to-do list this week. So thanks for asking. <laughs> yes. Well, that, that's a, a wonderful tradition. And obviously, uh, I'm biased in saying that, uh, certainly looking forward to the baseball season getting underway. Ben, thanks so much for the time, uh, for your continued support, uh, in my career and obviously to so many Penn Staters. It's been my pleasure, Jacob, anytime. Uh, it's great to chat with you. And again, uh, I'm a big believer and, and fan of Penn State, always will be. So thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Penn State Conversations. For more information about the Donald P. Bellisario College of Communications, including the latest news and upcoming events, visit bellisario.psu.edu or find us on social media at PSU Bellisario on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.